Welcome to the Layer 8 Podcast. This podcast is in conjunction with the Layer 8 Conference, which is happening for the third year on Saturday, June 6th, 2020 in Providence, Rhode Island. The Layer 8 Conference is the first one to solely focus on social engineering and open source intelligence, or OSINT, gathering. Social engineers and OSINT investigators always seem to have a great story, and you can hear many of those stories through their presentations at the conference. But not every story can fill a whole presentation, and not all storytellers can get to the conference, which brings us here. This podcast will only be stories told by the investigators themselves. No interviews, no slides, just stories. Some might be as short as five minutes, some may even go for 45 minutes. I hope you'll enjoy them. For this episode, we welcome Derek Lavasser, winner of Big Brother Season 16, host of the Discovery ID TV show Breaking Homicide, and the author of the best-selling book Undercover Edge, which helps you find your strengths and gain confidence to win in all situations. Derek tells us the story about the first time he went undercover as a police officer, and the methods he used to quickly gain the trust of a university drug dealer over a few games of pool that eventually led to a bust. Take it away, Derek. Okay, so my story is probably a little different than some of the other stories you've heard in the past. Um, most people don't get to experience this, especially at the age that I experienced it at. Um, I got hired as a police officer, a patrolman at 20 years old. And uh, contrary to popular belief, in most cases, when you get hired as a police officer, um, you don't get to do any type of detective work in the first five, sometimes 10 years, um, especially undercover work, because not only at that point are you a detective, but now they're relying on you to infiltrate a particular group on your own. And that takes a lot of trust. Um, but fortunately for me, my age in this situation was also my biggest advantage because not only was I young, but I, I looked very young. So here I am, 20 years old. I'm a patrolman. I've been on uh, about a year. And uh, I was having a lot of success on the streets because I was finding ways to approach people in a way that I wasn't talking down to them. I was talking to them. And what I found was you obviously get more bees with honey than you do with vinegar. So when I'd go to a scene, instead of coming off as this authoritative person and delegating responsibilities to people or instructing people that they had to speak to me because I had a badge, I would talk to them at a level where it was a human level where I would say, listen, you know, what do you know? What do you, where, you know, how could we help this person who's a victim, you know, together, we, this isn't you telling me what I need to know so that I can help. We're all going to be a part of this. And by making people feel like they're part of the solution, I found that they were more apt to tell me what I needed to know to find out who was involved with the crime, maybe a possible witness, et cetera. Another thing that I found when interviewing people, and we could really dive into this as far as speaking with people, is in, in the area where I was, it was inner city, really sub, uh, you know, urban area. And a, a common thing is that if you talk to the police, you're a snitch. So the first thing they want to do when you approach them and say, hey, what happened? Did you just see the shooting over here? The first thing they say to you is, no, nah, I didn't see nothing. And they want to walk away. And what I found is sometimes saying nothing at all elicits a specific response that you're looking for. And, and what I mean by that is when I would approach someone and say, hey, did you see anything over here? And they would respond with that, you know, oh, I didn't see nothing. And they start looking around to see if anyone's seen them talk to the police. I wouldn't say anything. I would just stare at them only for a couple of seconds, not to make it awkward, but awkward enough that they felt 
this responsibility to, to elaborate, to say more. Because what I found is a lot of times when we're having a conversation, when we're having this dialogue, people feel the need to fill that empty space with words. So if I'm not filling that empty space with words, somebody else has to. And by me not speaking, it's sending the message to them that I'm not satisfied with their answer, that I'm expecting them to say more. Didn't always work. But again, you have nothing to lose. So when I say to them, hey, did you see anything? Did you see the shooting that happened right here? Nah, man, I didn't see anything. But I mean, you know, there was a white car. That's, that's all I saw. That's all I saw. It was a white car and that was it. Wait a couple more seconds. Might have been two guys, um, but honestly, that's really all I saw. So now it went from I didn't see anything to now I saw a white car with two guys in it. And that's when you can say, well, that white car, you know, did it have any distinguishing mark? You can start to engage in a conversation. So those were some of the things that I innately, nobody really taught me that. It was just kind of something that I knew because I was from the city where I was a patrolman. So I knew the culture and I also knew what would work on me. And I felt like I was part of that community so I could relate to them. I was empathetic to them. So I knew how to approach them. Um, And I also had the trust of a lot of people in the community because, again, I was from there. So those were some little tricks of the trade that were made me pretty successful as a patrolman. And uh, I think that got started to get around the station. You know, I was young, but I was having success and I was actually passing off information to detectives about cases that weren't even mine because I had that immediate, you know, interaction with the, you know, police. So if there was a shooting or a drug thing that went that went on and they put out an email to patrolmen, a lot of the times I was responding with an email in the next day or two with, a, with someone who had information on their case. So you start to gain a lot of credibility with the detective unit. And I think that's why what I'm about to tell you about took place. So fast forward, it's about a year into the job. It's my 21st birthday. It's literally my 21st birthday. Um, and it's actually the, the, the morning after my 21st birthday, but I'm still in the hotel room after having my first couple celebratory drinks as a legal 21-year-old person who can now officially drink. And uh, I wasn't intoxicated, but I will say I was a little under the weather. It was about seven o'clock in the morning and my phone rings. And I noticed that it's the police department. Now, they all know it's my birthday. A lot of them were there. So I know that they know that I'm probably in the situation that I'm in. But I pick up anyways because I'm you know, new cop and police calls I'm picking up. So I pick up and thinking it's going to be like a sergeant or a lieutenant asking me if I want overtime, something generic. Instead, it's the chief of police, the number one guy, the top dog in my agency. And for anyone who knows law enforcement, the police chief isn't usually calling your cell phone if you're a one-year patrolman. It just doesn't happen. So I knew one of two things. This was going to be really, really good or he was about to fire me. It was one or the other. I didn't know if I did something the night before that I just couldn't remember, but I, I was pretty confident I was good. I was good so I, I figured it was something else. And he said, listen, uh, I need to talk to you. Um, what are you doing right now? And I said, well, chief, it was my birthday last night and uh, I'm just hanging out with some friends and we're going to get up and have some breakfast. And he says, okay, well, I have an opportunity for you. If you don't want to do it because it's your birthday, that's fine. I said, well, what is it? And he said, well, we had a situation come up. I don't want to tell you too much over the phone, but uh, it's an opportunity for you to possibly go undercover in a big operation. And uh, before he could finish a sentence, I was like, I'm on my way. So I wake everyone up in the hotel room. I, we did, you know, he did say, go get some breakfast, wake up, do what you got to do. So I took them all out for breakfast and I politely told them all that I was leaving and they could do whatever they wanted. 
So I had my breakfast, get up, head down to the police station. And uh, the uh, lieutenant in charge of detectives at the time sits me down with the chief of police and says, listen, we have an incident at this particular university that was in our area. It wasn't in my city, but it, that was a good thing because that means nobody had ever seen me before. But it's a prominent university in Rhode Island. Um, it's public information. So if your listeners want to go look it up, they probably can. Um, but I won't say the name because it is a prestigious school. And it's a very good school, by the way. Um, and uh, we'll leave it at that. But so they say, listen, we have an incident where we have some uh, lacrosse players on campus that are selling drugs to other students at these parties. Um, there may be some higher you know, pills involved. Girls are getting drugged and God knows what's going on. We really don't want that on the campus. And it's becoming kind of a constant thing. And it's this one particular group. So we know that you have a way with words. We know you're pretty good at you know, talking to people. But more importantly, you look like a college kid. And frankly, we don't have anybody in the cover right now that's going to fit that bill. That's not going to stand out like a sore thumb. And, you know, to be honest, Eric, you're probably the youngest looking cop in the state right now. So we really think you'd be good for it. But, you know, this is a, this is dangerous. You're going to be inside of a school with college kids and you might not think that that's bad, but just like anybody else, they could pull a trigger just as easily if they have the opportunity to do so. And you have to understand that if something goes wrong, you could be behind seven or eight locked buildings because of the type of security that's in dorm rooms and things like that. So we might not be able to get to you. And I said, I'm, I'm in, <laughs> I'm all for it. You know, I'm, I'm doing it. So we started to develop a background and, and how we did that was the whole reason this thing came about was because they actually arrested someone in the, in the crew of lacrosse players. And fortunately it was someone down the totem pole, somebody who, had a lot to lose, but not a lot to gain inside the organization. I mean, we're going to call it an organization in the college, but it, it wasn't really an organization. It was like 10 or 11 guys, uh, college kids doing stupid things. Um, and I want to preface it by saying these kids, um, just because they did these things doesn't make them bad people. Sometimes good people make bad decisions. And from what I've understood, most of them have gone on to you know be very successful and do the right thing. But at this particular time, they weren't doing the right thing. So I will say that. I don't know if they've all gone on to do great things, but just to be said, don't judge them too hard because you got to understand these kids are 18, 19, 20 years old, and we've all made dumb decisions. So we, we arrest this kid or this, this other department in the jurisdiction of the college, arrest this kid, and they got, they, got, they got something on them. So they said, listen, we want you to introduce one of our undercovers to your crew. And he starts talking about his crew, and I'm listening he's talking about how a lot of them have their girlfriends around and, you know, they like sports and they like lacrosse. I, by the way, I've never played lacrosse in my life. So I'm researching lacrosse, learning some of the lingo, um, learning some of the schools around the area, some of the techniques they use, um, talking to him, what kind of language these kids use, where they from. A lot of them are from New York. Some of the dialect, I was kind of reading him too, because I figured he represented a lot of how they talked. Um, a lot of profanity. So I was swearing a lot back with him, you know, trying to basically emulate his pers personality back to him so that I could go into the dorm room situation kind of coming off like him because the whole, the whole character that we were building was that I was his friend from New York. So he was going to introduce me for the weekend to hang out. And I said to him while we were in there, I said, you know, what would even lower their guard a little bit more if we were to do this? And the detectives are like, what? I'm like, have me go in with a girlfriend because it's one thing to think a guy's a narc, you know, they might be a little, you know, if I say something wrong or whatever, but if I'm in there with another girl and a very attractive girl, they're going to be more into my girl than they are worried about me. And the kid looked at us and says, that's a really good idea. 
So fortunately, there was a, a, a woman officer, a detective there, and she looked very young. And, and we built a whole persona, a whole character between her and I. We were dating for two years, both into drugs, um, where we were from, phone numbers. We were memorized each other's phone numbers. Uh, they got me an ID, a fake ID that looked pretty good, that had a fake address. I had to memorize that. And uh, we were on our way. We kind of discussed our stories, our backstories. And uh, we hopped in an undercover car and we drove up to the university. And before going to the university, I kind of knew the main individuals that I wanted to try to get close to. And I knew that I wasn't going to go right up to them at the first party. I wanted to go to their counterparts. I wanted to go to their friends because if this main person saw me hanging out with their friends and I was in, they would be more inclined to let me in as well. So we started at this bar. We're playing pool. And I immediately didn't approach my main target, the main guy that I wanted to get to, the, the big dog, the one who supposedly was storing all the drugs. I went to his best friend and he was playing pool. And we started building a rapport, talking to him, shooting the shit, swearing a little bit, you know, talking about girls, talking about my girl. You know, he was saying she was cute, whatever. And I said, yeah, man, hey, listen, we're not even that close. So, you know, if you do your thing, you know, really dropping his guard down and making him realize that I was just one of the boys. And for one of those you know, for any of those people out there that are listening, you know, I can drink when I'm undercover. Got to stay somewhat coherent. You can't get drunk. Um, can't do any heavy drugs. Um, could I smoke weed? Yes, I could. I didn't that night, but you could. You just have to write it in an affidavit at a later time. Um, but these are the things you can do to kind of, you know, there's a, this, this perception out there that, oh, if you're undercover, you can't drink because you can get in trouble. No, it's not true. I can. So I'm sitting there. I'm kicking back beers with them playing pool, talking about sports, talking about lacrosse. And sure enough, the main guy comes over. And so at some point I say, hey, why don't we play partners? And uh, I pretend like I didn't know who he was, you know, didn't know his name. I knew everything about him or as much as that guy told me at that point. I said, hey, why don't we partner up? We partnered up luckily, and sometimes it is luck. We won like three or four games in a row. So we really started to get friendly with each other. And uh, he actually invited me to hop in his car to drive back to the dorm room, this is perfect. This is absolutely perfect. And mind you, I don't have a recorder on me at this point because I didn't want to get caught with one. So we're kind of just shooting, you know, we're talking where he's saying, let's go back, let's play Madden. That was the big thing at college. Let's go play Madden. I would do whatever he wanted to do as long as it got me back to the dorm with him. So we drive back to the dorm. We're talking on the way. Um, he had asked me if I wanted to smoke some weed on the ride. I said I was laying off weed for the time. I was just sticking to drinking because I had, you know, I was worried about school and getting piss tested or anything like that. So I didn't smoke. So there was little ways to get out of it. If he would have pushed really, really hard, to be honest, I probably would have smoked it because I don't want to throw him off. And again, as we're sitting in the car, I'm letting him do most of the talking because every time he's speaking to me, I'm learning more about him. And that's really what it's about. It's getting in a car with someone or getting in a room with someone and making them feel like it's a mutual conversation, but asking questions that solicit specific responses. You know, what are they into? You know, who they frequent around. So even if I don't find the drugs, at least I can go back to my agency and have all this information that we didn't have before I arrived. So I'm sitting there and we're talking, but I'm really collecting data. I'm collecting data on this guy so I can figure out his inner workings, who he likes, who he dislikes, you know, does he have multiple rooms, et cetera. Uh, we get back to the dorm room. We head to his dorm room. Uh, we're playing Madden for probably two or three hours. And in that time, we're talking about family. We're talking about friends. We talked a little bit about religion. I'm not a religious person at all. But to him that night, 
I was all about it. You know, we talked about it. We talked about lacrosse. We talked about classes. Um, he actually talked to me a little bit about um, a shooting that happened in his hometown um, that kind of affected him. And it's part of the reason he smoked weed. And I immediately came back with, I had a traumatic story where I grew up, you know, to again, to lower that guard and find commonalities with him. So he looks at me, not as some person he just met, but as someone he happened to meet who he has a lot of common with and he can trust. And I, I made it seem like this was going to be a long-term thing. So I told him, you know, I'd be coming down multiple times. And, and the reason why I did that is because I didn't want him to think I'm going to see this kid one time. I'm never going to see him again. So I'm not going to get, you know, too in depth with him. But by doing all that, as we're sitting there playing this video game, he's talking about, you know, why he sells drugs on the side, why he does it. You know, he doesn't like the product that's in Rhode Island. It's not very good stuff. So he started bringing his own stuff in. He talked about the person that he gets it from, which was another person at another college, you know, that he gave the name of. So that was something else we followed up on. And then finally, as we're sitting there, I, you know, I'm saying to him, I'm going, you know, you got to be pretty smart because you're in a small dorm room. It's like a 10 by 10 room and you've never been caught. And I mean, people could come in here and steal your shit from you. You could have an RA come in here and search the room. Like, you know, I don't know how you do it, but hey, man, props to you. Never ask them where it was. And finally goes, you know what? You know why I never get caught? And I'll say, no, I got I have no clue. And he goes, look. And he points to the Xbox that we've been playing now for two or three hours. And what I noticed is that there was a PlayStation 4 right next to it. Or it might have been a PlayStation 3 for all your gamers out there. They're like, there wasn't out there then, but it was a PlayStation 3 or PlayStation 4. And I noticed that it, it looked kind of beat up. And more importantly, it didn't look like anything, any wires were running to it. And so he gets up and he flips it around. And again, anyone who's familiar with the PlayStation, there's like a motherboard in there and there's some other components, but a lot of it's aesthetics. There's a lot of voids in there. And he flipped the PlayStation around and it was filled with all the drugs, weed, pills, you name it. It's all in there. And he goes, that's why I'll never get caught because the last thing I'm going to do is check that. And it was also elevated. So his idea was, his, his ideology behind that was if a dog came in there, whatever, they don't sniff high, they only sniff low, which is not true, but I wasn't going to tell him that. Um, so I documented it in my head, made some mental notes, got what I needed. I got the product. Now I know it's in there. He had just restocked. It's a weekend. He's stocked up for the weekend. So I said my buys and grabbed my quote unquote girlfriend who was in the other room. And, uh, we went back to the, the police agency and gave him all the information. And the next morning they were taking his door off the hinges and they, uh, they actually ended up arresting him and, uh, six or seven others. Cause he actually, um, took a deal and gave up some other people, including the individual who is his supplier. Um, so this was kind of my first experience with social engineering, my first experience with, you know, using your ability to communicate with others and read people and read their micro expressions and find commonalities to get what you want. This was my first experience with it um, in, a, in a professional setting. What I realized is that I was kind of doing this my whole life, you know, and some of it's an innate ability. You don't have to be taught. It's just an ability to a feel an understanding of other people and being willing to listen as opposed to always speaking and uh, how much information you can gather by just sitting there and really letting them do all the talking. So first experience, but it definitely wasn't my last. After that experience, I had the bug. I wasn't officially a detective yet. I went back to patrol, but I was still doing operations with them. And eventually I became a full-time detective and an undercover narcotics detective because I knew after that occasion, after that incident, that that's what I wanted to do um, for the majority of my career. And I was fortunate enough to do it. So yeah, that was my first experience. There's definitely some, been some more riskier stories since then that I've been involved in. 
but I can tell you that that's a story I'll never forget because I don't think anyone ever forgets their first chance. Cause I can tell you, you might think oh, college kids, it's not that scary. And, and you know, it really wasn't, but to be honest in that, in that moment, I was petrified. I was petrified that I was going to blow the case. I was petrified that they're going to figure me out. And some of these guys were big dudes and they, they could have really hurt me. And uh, you know, so it was, I didn't have a gun on me or anything like that. So you know, it was, it was still very dangerous, but that adrenaline and that, that ability to go into a situation where you're a completely outside character and infiltrate that crew and infiltrate the people you need to, to get the information you need to, to ultimately solve the case. That's a feeling I can't describe. It's the best. So, um, had a lot of fun doing it and, uh, did it many more times, but again, you never forget your first. So good time overall though. Great story, Derek. Thank you for telling that. And thank you for listening to the Layer 8 Podcast. If you want to learn more about us, you can check us out at Layer8Conference.com or on Twitter at Layer8Conf, C-O-N-F. Thank you very much and hope you enjoyed it.